Well, welcome to the Encephalitis podcast. We've got another really special treat in the shape of playwright Susie Miller today. Listeners will be familiar with Susie's recent work, in particular, a play that's received much attention and acclaim, Prima Facie, starring Jodie Comer, which recently had a three-month stint in the West End in London, and next year hits Broadway. The play, for those who don't know, is about a young female barrister confronting the patriarchal power of the law, where the legal requirement for the burden of proof and our morality meet head on. In short, emotion and integrity are in conflict with the legal game. But in addition to this, Susie is also a survivor of encephalitis. In 1995, in her early 30s, Susie was working as a lawyer while studying at the University of New South Wales for a master's in theatre and film. She contracted encephalitis, unable to work for a year. Susie described that time in her life as the most vulnerable and a time when she felt that her life fell apart. So we've got plenty to talk about with Susie today. Welcome, Susie, and thank you for joining me on the Encephalitis podcast. Thank you for having me, Ava. Oh, well, we're so thrilled. I'm going to dive straight into things. You know, where and when did the idea of Prima Facie first surface? Oh, it's such a good question. And I get asked it a lot. And I think when I was a law student studying criminal law at university, knowing that I wanted to head into human rights and defence law, the one area that I felt was just not working that well was sexual assault and rape law because you'd read all these old cases and you'd be taught by various lecturers who didn't point out that there was something very odd about holding up someone's underwear in court and saying is this what you were wearing to imply certain things and so forth and it just didn't seem very women focused and even though I'm an absolute diehard innocent until proven guilty lawyer I was defense lawyer and human rights lawyer I just felt that there was something about that particular crime, that particular area of law that was blinded by a sort of patriarchal system and was very unfair towards the victim that they were getting cross-examined and interrogated in court. And I thought that the actual law of consent was wrong, dare I say. And I think as a junior lawyer and a junior law student, people didn't really hear what I had to say or hear, think it was actually, you know, because it had been going on for generations and generations. And so as I became a more senior lawyer, I would voice that and I had other friends that would voice that as well. But I thought, how do I explain to people how you can be a defence lawyer and actually believe in innocence until proven guilty, but know there's something wrong with, with rape in the legal system, that that actual innocence until proven guilty is at the mercy or sorry that is at the stake of a woman being interrogated in court over something horrific I also it was so interesting to me that people kept assuming women were lying and I thought I have taken six sexual assault statements a day in some of my practice because I also did victims compensation law and I thought there's no way these women are lying there's just no motivation whatsoever they were so reluctant to even tell me half of their story And they only told me because I said, you know, let's put it in a statement, then you have that for life. Whenever you go into a psychologist or whatever, you can show them this piece of paper or these pages and you don't have to repeat it over and over again. And also they could apply for some compensation, just very minimal compensation for some assistance and psychological services and so forth. So um, and then I just thought I have to write a plus story that shows it doesn't just tell it that shows it. So 
really prima facie was about showing that something happened to someone and it's a one woman show. So you actually don't see it happen, but you see the experience of the woman having it happen to her. And, and then you see what the court, how the court re-narratizes that and cross-examines her. And so you say, hang on, something amiss here. And in fact, what's been really fabulous is that the legal profession have come to the party and they really have um, responded so brilliantly to the work. So I feel like I've had more impact as a playwright than I ever had as a lawyer, strangely, which is very odd when I think of how many years study I did as a lawyer. <laughs> but anyway, so yeah, it's been a sort of whole circle to come back and join those two parts of my life together. Well, we're going to come back to the reaction of, of the legal profession, both men and, and women in it. Um, was the Me Too movement a catalyst um, for the play to be realised at all? I think for the play to be realised, it most definitely was but I actually wrote it just before the Me Too movement. So as I wrote it, I kind of wrote it to show the paradox even to myself because I was so frustrated in trying to explain it and people not quite understanding what I was saying. So um, I wrote it really thinking it would never go on. And then the Me Too movement came about just as I finished it and it went on, which was, you know, in Australia to begin with. And it was it was just the one show I never thought would be the one that would be my big show. I mean, I've written a lot of work over a lot of years. This is a one person show. That's not the one you think is going to take you to the West End and Broadway by any stretch. Yeah, absolutely. And when we talk about this one person, this is who we're talking about, Jodie Comer. Um, I will come back to to uh, the play in the script, which, as you can see, I've got a copy of. But what was it like working with Jodie and, and also the team behind the play? The team were phenomenal. And I know everyone always says that when you interview them after the fact and something's gone well. But from the beginning, it was organic. It was quite an amazing selection of people. So first of all, there was another Tessa before Jodie, who was the Australian Tessa, who was utterly brilliant. She really was brilliant. Then Jodie brought the English version to London. And this she was just a phenomenal, not just a phenomenal actor, but actually a phenomenal person. She really, she's you know, 29 years old, but wise beyond her years. But even more that she jumped in boots and all, she wanted to do this with every fiber in her body. And you know, she's a screen actor. She'd never done theater before. She was prepared to get up there and risk her, you know, all the crit critics and so forth and really tell this story. And she really had the same drive of wanting to tell a story that actually had meaning. And the two men that worked in the very close confines of that, of our circle of production was James, James Beerman, who was the producer, who upon his first reading, I think I'd barely gotten home on the tube, he called me and said, I want to do it in the West End. So that was like a great moment. And I'd known James for some years and we'd talked about working together when we found the right play. And I just really gave him this to read thinking he might enjoy a one-person show. I never thought that he was going to make that call. And Justin Martin, I had met previously and we'd absolutely bonded, like that sort of creative simpatico. And I really wanted him, even though he's a man and everyone assumed I'd want a female director. And even I was like confronted by how much James, um, Justin seemed to be the right person. But he really understood something and he really wanted to open the conversation up to men. And that to me is the whole purpose of the show is to have a conversation with everyone because it's not just a woman's problem, it's actually a community problem. Mm. Yeah, I think that's really important. You know, I was quite struck. I'm, I'm kind of going a bit off script now, but I was quite struck because I went, as you know, um, uh, it had sold out in the West End before I had put all the pieces of our connection with you together and one thing another, but I did manage to get 
tickets to see it at our local cinema because the National Theatre have been kind of broadcasting it through cinemas um, uh, around the country. And I was, I thought it was going to, it was sold out, by the way, our local, little local cinema here in North Yorkshire. um, They're putting it on again because they had so much demand for the play. Um, and that's incredible. But I was struck by how many men were in the audience and I wasn't expecting to see any men when I walked in. Yeah, so I think that's yeah. really interesting. And I think it's really important. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm pleased um, that we're opening up that conversation beyond women. I have had incredible feedback from men, actually. It's been, yeah. it's been quite humbling to see them see it from the perspective of a lived experience of women for the first time and say, I just didn't even realise. I jumped on the bandwagon of, oh, they're probably lying or, you know, they're out to get someone and kind of humbly approach me or or send me DMs or whatever. I've had so much, uh, so many contacts made by strangers or audience members. They're not strangers now, they've seen my work. But but just saying, you know, I, I really, I thought so long and hard after I saw it and, you know, for a playwright, that's just a gift. You never think that you're going to reach that that closely into people's hearts and actually have them reconsider how they saw something. And I do have to say that Jodie's performance was very accessible. She was very much everyone's sister, girlfriend, uh, you know, cousin, friend. And I think people suddenly saw that if this is happening to so many women, how can they just say that, you know, only 1.3% convictions, all the others are lying? It's just not possible. <laughs> yeah. Well, the critical reaction to Prima Facie, um, as we know, has been overwhelmingly positive with several awards and huge acclaim um, on the West End. Um, but what's next for Prima Facie? Well, you know, it's so interesting. It's actually got a life of its own now. I don't see it as my play. I see it as something I've shared with everyone and people have taken it on board and Jodie's made it her own and you know, Justin's made it his. And it's actually, first of all, it's uh, the NT Live production was spectacular. I mean, I never, ever thought that it would attract such a cinema-going audience. It doesn't, you, know, you describe a play about rape with one pet character and you don't think people are going to buy tickets at the cinema. But the NT Live also do such a slick, professional, really brilliant job of bringing a story on stage digestible to the cinema, which is, you know, a a great skill and also means it reaches so many more people, which is exactly what James, myself and Justin and Jody wanted to do is just reach as many people as possible. So that was already enough. If that wasn't enough, it's now going to Broadway next year, early next year, with, with Jody and Justin and James, the same team we're all going. And, of course, our fabulous designer, if you saw the design in either the cinema version or on stage itself, it's just the most spectacular design. It's really brilliant. And the lighting and the projection and everything together. So that's all coming with us to Broadway. And that's incredibly exciting. I've never, you know, I haven't had a show on Broadway before. I don't think, I don't think Jodie's never been to Broadway before. I mean, this is her first real foray into theatre. So to go to the West End of Broadway with such critical acclaim already, because we've already been reviewed by the New York Times and the Washington Post is really spectacular. And I'm excited for all of us, but also just excited that people get to see the work. And at this stage, there's so many other non-English speaking countries that are buying their own they're translating it into their language and putting it on for their community. So, you know, I feel like it is actually out in the world and it's its own thing now. It's no longer just mine. It belongs to all of us that shaped it, including the first production in Australia. 
Oh, that's just incredible to hear. I'm going to make sure that I actually have to be in New York on business around <laughs> the time of the plane coming because I'm coming. I'm coming Tuesday, right? <laughs> yeah, um, I love it. <laughs> but I, I said, fantastic. so many people are telling me they're coming. I'll be excited if they all show up. We're having a big party in New York. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but look, I said that we'd come back to the legal profession. I'm curious, what reaction have you had from both men and women who've seen it, you know, especially you know, in the legal profession? I have to say, absolutely brilliant. And I was in, I was really frightened when it first came out in Australia, thinking that this could be the end of my legal, like the respect that I had as a lawyer, being able to speak out so strongly against something for defence. Um but it's been remarkable, actually. People, really intelligent lawyers have really considered it and come up with like different ways to kind of like focus in on solutions, which is amazing because it's a really, like the solution is a really big solution, actually. Having said that, the British legal system has been incredible. Like I had lunch at the Old Bailey with all the judges. Um, and I also have a, quite a big coterie of QCs and barristers and judges that are sitting down and they've made a, an organisation called Tessa's Law, where it's the examination of serious sexual assault law, and they're actually coming up with ways that they could, things that they could submit to parliament and submit to policy to actually increase the, the, the relative fairness in court and also to interrogate how there is a sort of patriarchal male gaze on sexual assault in court. And it's actually very hard for victims evidence to fit into that model. So I've been so overwhelmed with how clever these people are in putting together these policies, but also we're connected to the school's consent project, which James, the producer, has been very strong in encouraging, and it's just a brilliant project. All of these barristers go out for free and volunteer at different schools all around Britain and basically talk to young people about consent and talk to young people about what it is, why it's important, how it's something that changes from minute to minute and you have to keep checking in and just say, I, you know, is this okay? It's a very easy question. But um, just to sort of really enhance this idea that respect around women's agency and autonomy in that decision-making is fundamental to an intimate relationship of any sort. So that's been a huge, huge project to be to be connected to and it's, it's become very visible through this show. And I think they're even hoping to take it to New York and start a consent project in New York as well. Well, that's just incredible to have come out of this, as you say, this one woman play, who knew? Um, but it's quite a jump from human rights lawyer to playwright, uh, Susie. How did that come about? Yeah, it is a big jump. And now I look back and I think it was quite a, I don't know how I actually made the leap, really, except that uh, at the time I was working as a lawyer, I went back to what we call the National Institute of Dramatic Art in Australia, which is like RADA but it has seven people a year that it chooses to encourage as playwrights. And that was, I guess, my launching pad. And then I wrote a play based on 24 hours of where I work, this community in King's Cross in Sydney, which is the red light district, working with young sex workers and people using a lot of drugs and having really disadvantaged lives. But looking at the community underneath that and how they actually supported each other and tried to get by each 24 hours, really. And that just had such a big impact. It actually went on a tiny little theatre in King's Cross and people came out of the theatre and said, you know, I now don't walk down the main drag of King's Cross and think, oh, all these people are prostitutes and, you know, and like have a voyeuristic sort of tourist get gaze at them. I now realise they could be my cousins or someone I went to school with. So it was about humanising the faces behind the legal statistics. And then it went to the Sydney Opera House and the media around that had such an impact 
that I thought, gosh, you know, I'm just doing this day by day in court and I've got my finger in the leak, you know, whereas if I actually tell a story, people actually feel the sort of empathy and compassion and maybe they, then there's a bigger community difference. And I guess, you know, it's naive in so many ways, but I, I did become a lawyer because I wanted to change the world. And as a storyteller, I really want to have a social impact as well. So I guess as long as I can continue to do that, I'll keep writing. <laughs> Well, we happened across your story in an interview about your career and, of course, about the, the play Prima Facie. When you mentioned in that article that you'd had encephalitis in, in your early 30s, um, and I know when, when we chatted, when we met down in London, you said to me that was the first time, really, that you'd, you'd publicly said anything. Um, yeah. And you were quite shocked when I suddenly, you know, um, reached out to you uh, out of nowhere. Um, but can you tell me about that time in your life? Absolutely. I was I was just 30 and I was very, very busy. I was working as a lawyer. I was doing my master's in theatre and film. And I was also lecturing at the law school, which, um, you know, like two nights a week. So I was overworked. My husband had a very bad virus, which is very, very unlike him to get so sick. And then something must have happened and I caught the same virus. But for me, because I was a bit run down, it crossed the blood barrier into my brain rather than just a throat and, and um, headachey thing. And honestly, the symptoms I had were things that I had never experienced before. I think I was in a bit of denial when it first happened and I started, I tried to work through it. And I was giving a lecture actually about the Azaria Chamberlain case in Australia, which people probably know about in the UK about the dingo and, and the baby. Um, and I was talking about the inquiry that came after the case and I started repeating myself over and over but not meaning to and then I started to think something is terribly wrong but I also had a lot of numbness and then I went straight to hospital and of course I started on the hospital bandwagon and before I knew it my life was pretty much a completely different life everything fell apart really because work very much defined me I was about to get married to my boyfriend at the time who's now my husband incidentally um, so we were engaged to get married it was we had a big year ahead and um, and I just went from neurologist to neurologist where they basically confirmed that I had a viral encephalitis and you know, I was terrified. I was absolutely terrified. I was so frightened about what was possible because they talk about to the extent you'll sustain levels of brain injury. And I thought my, my, I might have to give my law degree back or I might have to. And also because before I did law, I also did science. So I knew a lot about neurology. And so I was using the part of me that wasn't well to cross-examine my own brain about what was going on. And I kept a diary all the way through it. And I remember at the very beginning sort of putting a little like a box, say, tick this box when you're well, because I thought I can't actually imagine being well again. Um, and I, I know that the day that I ticked that, you know, a good year later, nine months later, I remember thinking, this is profound. I actually want, I want to be able to tell myself, if anything ever happens to me again, that you can get well again, that you, you know, it really is a long journey. But I don't think people, I mean, for me anyway, at 30, I'd never been sick for more than maximum two weeks in my life so it was such a shock for it to go on and on and also just to talk to neurologists who really don't know that much about the brain and don't know how you're going to pan out I mean they can only give you statistics or from their own experience and you know I spent a lot of time on my own I, you know I was I mean I had some terrible kind of areas where I lost consciousness quite a few times at home during a day a few days and 
I mean, I was I really realised how fragile life is, I think, and how fragile brains are. But also, I mean, I would never say it was worth it, but I really learned a lot during that process about myself and also about how short life is and what I very much wanted to focus on. And I've, you know, I, I'd been sort of dancing through life, trying everything, doing well academically, and I guess, you know, really sort of forging forward. And I was really stopped in my tracks completely and utterly. And I looked around and everyone else was at work that was my age. There was no one around. And I basically became someone that was in the community of very unwell and very elderly people. And I was in the neurology ward for some time, which was quite a harrowing place to be, just in to, to the extent that I could observe what was happening around me. And I just didn't know, I didn't know this level of despair existed until I was there myself. So I remember at the time, Ava, and I told you as well, that you know there was a period where they weren't sure whether it was MS or encephalitis until they could rule out MS. And I remember there was an MS society. And I remember in 1995, there was nothing like an encephalitis society. And I remember thinking when they ruled out MS, oh no, I've got the thing that there's no support. There's nowhere to go. There's no one to ask for advice. I don't know anyone that's even had this. And my husband, who's now my husband, my boyfriend at the time was really scared as well for me. I mean, he was incredibly supportive, but it's a very stressful thing to be the carer of someone who's very, very unwell. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, I wished that I'd had somewhere to reach out. And the fact that you came, got in touch with me after you read that article was sort of exciting for me because I thought, wow, people that go through what I went through then have got an encephalitis society to reach out to. So I'm actually delighted to be associated in any way to think that if there's any way that my story of recovery and you know and a long version of recovery but certainly a full recovery uh can impact anyone I would have loved I would have hung on for dear life to a story like that at the time mm. yeah absolutely and and you're not you're not alone there Susie as you know now many people feel the same um yeah. how, how are you today do you have any after effects the only after effect I have, which actually is quite hindering to my career in a way, is that sometimes I don't recognise people if I if they're out of context. So if I saw you at the theatre tonight, Ava, I'd probably go, I know that I know you, but I don't know where from and I don't know your name. And unfortunately, in my profession, which is quite a, you know, where people keep introducing themselves to me and I see them out and about, by not recognising people, I can look quite rude. And it's not because I don't recognise them. Sometimes I overcompensate by thinking I must know everyone. And then I sort of, to a stranger, I'm ridiculously friendly and they, they, don't, they actually don't know me. So I had that before. I had encephalitis. I always had a tendency, but everyone's noticed it's much worse since. And in fact, actually recently I was at the theatre in Australia with a friend of mine and her um, university-aged daughter who I've known for so many years and she's dyed her hair brown. And for the life of me, I had no idea who she was. And I went, oh, here it is again. <laughs> so it happens all the time. I mean, I now tell people, you know, I've actually now that Brad Pitt has that same issue, I feel like if I could only pronounce the word, I'd be able to say, you know, I have what Brad Pitt has as well, that particular thing where you can't recognise people. But that's probably, I mean, that's the only, that's the only physical response, you know, issue that I continue to have. But from a mental health point of view, I think I changed as a human being by going through that process. And I think I think I was a compassionate person before, but I think that, that actually being so low down in the world in terms of autonomy and being able to do anything and just feeling so left behind 
really gave me an understanding that we can all run around in the rat race and jump on board all these fast trains to wherever. But actually, you've got to do what really matters to you and you have to be the person you most want to be because you can't put off till tomorrow <laughs> what you can do today because today is all you really have. Mm. And I think at 32, one of the doctors said to me when I was talking to various doctors, in fact, some doctors had some fantastic ways of talking through it with me. And one of the neurologists said to me, you know, nerve cells grow really quickly in recovery. No, sorry, really slowly in recovery, like they're the slowest growing cells. And he said, so as someone that uses your brain, you're constantly checking all the time to see if something's fixed or if the numbness is gone or if the kind of, I had some very strange somatic and you know, half my body wasn't working as well as the other half. And, um, and he said, you know, like if you, were, if you were laying bricks, you wouldn't be thinking about it all the time. You'd just be laying the bricks and watching something grow. But he said, what I would say to you, and you know, this is the advice from a neurologist when you think there's very, else that, very little else they can do for you. He said, go home and plant some seeds. And when, and when those seeds start to come to the green sprout, you'll know you've grown a little bit of brain, a little bit of brain cell, um, nerve cells. So um, I did do that, ironically. I actually went back and I went, right, well, I'll do everything they tell me to do. And that was one of the few things that gave me some perspective on the fact that you have to wait for recovery. You don't just push it through a kind of exponential line. You actually have to work with your body and just wait for things to recover. And I think um, that vulnerability was a very big part of it for me. And I would have liked to have been able to speak to people or get on the phone to an organization or read some stories about someone who'd been there before. And it's quite profound. I mean, I learned to meditate and I learned to, I think I just learned to be who I am really. I, you know, And it's not like I would choose to learn it that way by any stretch, but um, I think, it's probably why I became a playwright because I could have stayed a lawyer forever thinking I'll do that next year or the year after. But I thought, well, if I want to do it, it's now or never. So um, I think, and one of, the, one of the lovely nurses said to me, when you come out of this, just lay your foundation with rock, not sand and build something really strong that you know is who you want to be and what you want to do with your life. And, you know, I was 30. It was a really, you know, I still had so much time and, you know, hopefully still do. But it was just that interesting thing of saying, yeah, what do I actually want to build? What do I want? What do I want? To, what impact do I want to have on this world? Because, um, you know, I was, you know, I had lots of opportunities, but what do I want to do? And so leaving and deciding that writing for theatre was what I wanted to do was a big jump because, you know, it's very different to what I'd been doing. And I wasn't going to be guaranteed a, a good income early on that or ever, but it was, it felt really important. So in a way, who I am today is very much based on, on that year, really. Wow. <laughs> What's next, Susie? Are you working on anything that you can share with us? I'm not, yeah, well, actually, at the moment, I'm in Melbourne in Australia opening a new play called Anna Kay about an investigative journalist who's been, who's made a decision in her personal life that doesn't fit with what people expect women to choose. And as a consequence, she's been shamed online so much that she's deteriorating. And so in a little bit, like a little, inspired a little bit by Tolstoy's Anna Karenina, but actually my Anna at the end has a way of fighting back and reclaiming her autonomy. So it's just about how the gendered online shaming of people um, is so bad for women. Like they actually make it so sexually violent and violent generally against women when, they, when people pile on Twitter and it's a real orchestrated 
way of trying to silence people online. So I was, I was just looking into that. Not that I've had that experience, but I have spoken to people that have and I've watched it in action and you think, this is the new way of silencing high profile people online or just women that are speaking up. So it's kind of interesting to me. And then I have a, another show in Sydney this year, which is about Ruth Bader Ginsburg and that, that conversation with Obama that she had all those years ago, that seems to be something that people are talking about again now. And it's a reimagining of her conversation with three different presidents actually. So um, she was a bit of a hero for me. So it's exciting to, I've read so much and done so much research. It's quite exciting to have that one's in rehearsal at the moment. And then I come back to Britain for a lot of TV shows that I can't talk about and some films that I'm very excited about but can't talk about and some new plays as well, as well as some old plays being brought back up because some of them have been rediscovered by people now that this has done so well and people are very excited about those. So I feel like, you know, my writing's in a good place at the moment. That's amazing. Well, I'm sure that we'll catch up over a glass of wine or something when you're back Absolutely. in the UK. Um, but we have got some exciting news that we're going to share with our listeners um, because we've invited you to become an ambassador of the Encephalitis Society. And I'm absolutely thrilled to say that you accepted and you accepted very quickly, Susie. Well, I just felt so right for all the reasons I've explained that, you know, I, I mean, it was one of those moments where you kind of pinch yourself because you go, remember that 30 year old crying in her sort of tiny apartment, wishing there was someone to call to say, what is this and what happens next? And here you are contacting me saying, we've set that up and can you support it? And of course, I would wholeheartedly support it and wholeheartedly, you know, offer just my story or whatever I can to people that are going through it currently because I do think it's one of the most challenging things that you can experience not being able to rely on your brain in the way that you think you, you have been able to in the past and I think it takes a very brave and courageous person to battle it and I also think that um, it's really hard on people's carers as well or people's close people so uh, yeah I'm delighted it's such a wonderful organization and it, you know it, it really is like the full circle for me <laughs> having recovered and come back and talking about it's the first time I've spoken about it in the media actually and I felt a bit vulnerable speaking about it because it's almost like it's a time that even though there's I have a lot of memories of it I don't talk about it a lot because it's a very vulnerable time so it's not an easy thing just to chat about um, but having said that, I do look back and think, gee, there were a lot of broken periods that could have been helped by having an encephalitis society to call up and say, what do I do now? And who are the doctors? And do you know other young people that have this that I could even have a conversation with? Um, and, you know, everyone who I did meet in neurology were very, very elderly. And I sort of felt very out of sync with even the people that were suffering from it. And I wanted to know that I just wanted to know that there was a chance I could get better, really. And I think that that would have given me so much hope because at the time, I, I really wasn't sure. I mean, they were saying that it might not be possible that you'll recover from this. So it's a big thing at 30 to, to even confront your mortality, I think. At any age, I think it is. <laughs> but to have someone to speak to and say, yep, you know, we know where you're at and we know what's possible and keep keep hoping and keep fighting and keep just getting up and going through the motions of 
going to those appointments and knowing who the right people are. I mean, you, you're dragged kicking and screaming to being that unwell. And when you get there, it's a myriad of hospital appointments and doctors and people give, coming up with all sorts of crazy ideas that might help you. And you'll go in any direction. You're so desperate for relief and you're so desperate for, for something, someone to make you well again. And in the end, you really just need someone to tell you what you can rely on and what does actually help. And so I think having a, a central place that does that is brilliant. Yeah. Well, as you say, you've you've come full circle now. We will put you to good use at some point in order to help us <laughs> raise more global awareness um, of this, as you say, often devastating uh, condition. But we're nearing the end of the podcast, Susie. So I'm just going to switch things up a little bit before we finish. And this is your Desert Island Disc moment. Oh, right. um, yes, of course. <laughs> so your first uh, is favourite book or play and why? Oh, gosh, that's so hard for me. Um, I have to say that David Grossman's book to the end of the to the end of the earth, I think or to the end of the land is one of my favourites. It's about a mother that goes on this journey because she doesn't want to get a phone call that says her child might have died in, in the war. And so she just goes walking with an old, old, but very close friend from her past that she was in hospital with when she was a child. And there's something so moving and so soulful about that, that story. That's actually a, a book that it's utterly brilliant and beautifully written. David Grossman actually did lose a child in the war. Um, and he also writes about it with real poignancy. And he's also someone that is, he's Israeli, but he's very, very, also very supportive of Palestine. And I find him to be quite an extraordinary man just in the way he talks about that. But also just this story is quite beautiful. Um, there's so many books I love, I can't even begin to know where, but also plays. Dennis Kelly, who is a, a British playwright, is my favourite playwright. And I just think that everything he writes is really special and really hard hitting and very human. And he really understands the human condition. So there's that. Um, well, I'm going to those. What was that? Sorry, I'm going to look out for those. I haven't heard of the book by David Grossman, so yeah, it's beautiful. I actually gave it to one of the judges I spoke to recently because they were just talking about a similar issue, and I just got an email back saying, "Oh wow, it's beautiful." But it is—it's a really—it packs a hard punch as well. So, but it's yeah. a really interesting book. Yeah. Okay. And so your next one is favorite singer or band. Well, I have to say at the moment, my favourite singer is Rebecca Lucy Taylor, who's self-esteem, who does the music on Prima Facie. And just watching, like hearing and being invited into her world of music has been awesome for me. Just like seeing how she makes it and how profound she is and how beautiful her work is. It's just wonderful. But I also have a favourite singer in Australia, which is um, Paul Kelly and his band. And he's been around forever. And I guess he's the soundtrack to my childhood in many ways as well as my adulthood and my children's um now adulthood so um so yeah thinking about him that's that's like a that he's a he's a beautiful like composer and beautiful um like he writes beautiful lyrics as well I mean I have so many but it's so hard to choose <laughs> um and I do, you know generally I do love singer-songwriters but particularly women singer-songwriters that really get you in the gut Mm. so and Rebecca does that I think she's known as self-esteem so I should give her her proper moniker okay um and your final desert island disc question is you can invite three people dead or alive to dinner who would they be and why oh my gosh 
Well, I definitely invite Ruth Bader Ginsburg because I have a lot of questions having just written the play. Um, who else would I invite? Oh, maybe Laurence Olivier. I <laughs> just wanted to, right. I'd like to know more about the theatre in his time. And who else? I should say someone that's alive. I really love David Lamb, who's a director from The Young Vic. And I'm reading his biography at the moment and I'd love to have dinner with him, but that's probably quite possible because we have some friends in common, so who knows? <laughs> you should make that happen for sure. I'm not sure there's much we can do about Laurence Olivier in the <laughs> Ginsburg. But... No, sadly, yeah. <laughs> um, well, look, we've come towards the end of this podcast. Thank you, you know, so much. Um, audience, first of all, I've both read the play and seen a screening of it by the National Theatre. If you get the opportunity, please read this um, or go and see it. Then I think the National Theatre screenings are still going on. It really is quite something and you'll be left contemplating and philosophising for days afterwards. Um, always the sign of a, of a good play, in my opinion. Um, and I think, indeed, you might never look at the law um, in the same way. I certainly didn't. Thank you for this play, Susie. Um, do go and see it, people. I bought this from Amazon, so you can get a copy of the script, which is incredibly powerful on its own, you, you know. So you can get a copy of this from, um, from the National Theatre or from Amazon. Thank you for taking the time to join me today, um, Susie. It's been our absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Well, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Ava, and to your audience. <laughs> oh, thank you. And for people listening, just remember the Encephalitis Society it remains at your service. If you need any support or information, our teams are, are always there for you. Go to encephalitis.info for contact details or to chat online with any of the team. We hope that you've enjoyed this, uh, this podcast. Um, and as always, if you can support our life-saving work, we would be extremely grateful. Please visit Encephalitis info forward slash donate and importantly don't forget to read this people. Mm -hmm.